0: From the made-up world of an author and illustrator to the realities of the early settlers of Muslims in the Midwest, childcare, and the right to repair, you're in the moment. I'm Kara Hetland and today we'll meet author Edward Curtis. He takes us back to the 1900s to share the stories of an often overlooked group of Midwesterners. We'll also meet author and illustrator Andrew Kolb He creates role-playing guides and games, and he's coming to South Dakota to help us unlock imaginary worlds. Jackie Hendry joins us for a preview of this season's South Dakota Focus, and we'll talk about the right to repair. We're broadcasting live today from SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. I'm Kara Hetland, you're in the moment, and the news
1: is first.
0: And I'm Kara Hetland. I'm in today for Lori Walsh. And SDPB's South Dakota Focus is coming back to your television screens with an ambitious goal. And instead of focusing on different topics each and every month, um, the entire season this year is taking a closer look at one issue, and that is South Dakota's children. And it is, I can say this, so exciting. It's a thrilling new season. Uh, It premieres this Thursday on SDPB TV. And Jackie Hendry is the host, writer, uh, and all around go along with Kara's crazy ideas. (laughs) (laughs) And she joins me in the SDPB's (laughs) Kirby Family Studio to preview the show. Jackie, welcome. And I can say this, I am so proud uh, of this first episode and you embracing this. So let's start with how we came up with this idea.
2: Yeah. Um, well, I got an email towards the end of last season.
3: Gotta love the email.
2: With an opportunity uh, uh, forwarded along by by you and our director of content, Twyla Olson, uh, about a National Press Foundation fellowship about the future of the American child. Uh, we with your support, I applied for that, was accepted. This was a few days in Cleveland, Ohio, with a whole bunch of other journalists and different uh, different disciplines from all around the country. And we all got together to talk about how we report on young people. And so the focus of those few days, a lot of it was about foster care. A lot of it was about uh, long COVID and childhood obesity and other health issues for children. But then also as I'm sitting there, I'm thinking, I'm not hearing anything about childcare, and I know that's an issue in South Dakota. I'm not hearing about um, specifics to mental health in South Dakota, or I'm thinking, how do I focus this on uh, foster care in South Dakota? So, uh, brought that great information back, some great contacts and thought, what if we spent a whole season, each episode, on different issues specific to South Dakota kids?
0: And we said, let's. Yes, (laughs) yes. Uh, I'm an easy yes often. So, uh, yes, great idea and great content. So to explain how you're laying out the season.
2: Yeah. Uh, kind of trying to give it a bit of an arch across, you know, nine months, we have nine shows. Uh, our first episode, we're starting at the beginning, uh, not even with babies, but with maternal healthcare. Um, so much of lifelong outcomes really begins before, a kiddo is even earthside in a lot mm-hmm. of cases. So we're, we're giving an overarching look at maternal health care access in South Dakota, some of the barriers to those prenatal visits that mothers might face and potential solutions to that access piece. From there, we're moving on to child care. We'll have a show about uh, youth mental health and trauma care for young people, foster care, K through 12 education, wrapping up the season in May with high school graduates and how South Dakota high schoolers are deciding what's next for them in that graduation season. I'm really excited about what we've got lined up this year.
0: Okay, and we have uh, put out the request to high school students to help us uh, with some content Mm -hmm. as well, so we're hoping to have more episodes with um, shorter stories Uh, where high school students are participating in your season, too.
2: Yeah, big shout out. uh, Sturgis Brown High Schoolers stepped up to the challenge for us last season uh, with a story about mental health. We want to invite any any high schoolers, you know, you've got a smartphone, you've got a story to tell. There are ways to make that happen, and I would love to hear from high schoolers about what matters to high schoolers.
0: Okay, so... This season, uh, we're also doing something different and we're convening a town hall Mm -hmm. uh, discussing the child hair crisis and another maybe Kara hairbrained idea. (laughs) We're linking live that evening uh, both our Rapid City and our Sioux Falls studios and we're going to have panelists in each facility uh, talking, live studio audience in both. Take it from there.
2: Yeah, so child care, we know everyone around the state If you have a kid that's not school-age, you know that this is an issue. And we hear that parents are kind of white-knuckling it through those preschool aged years, and and we're running into issues. And that's more than we can talk about in a half-hour typical episode. So we're bringing decision-makers together. There's a lot of confusion about whose problem is this to solve. (laughs) So we're bringing lawmakers, business owners, uh, daycare providers, childcare experts, Uh, Into these studios on both sides of the state, including audiences. We'll invite audience questions both live in person and online during the live stream. You can submit those and we'll be monitoring for that uh, to really get down into it, what needs to happen in South Dakota.
0: And we're not putting an end time so it could be yeah. longer than an hour so <laughs> yes. um so that is our plan october 3rd if you'd like to participate uh in be an audience member uh or you can watch it on facebook live youtube channel or sdpb.org live and you can join either rapid city or sioux falls location in person or watch it on the stream watch the archive of it Uh, we are off to a great and exciting season and really having the dialogue and convening the deciders. So, Jackie, thank you so much. Congratulations on a season well done. I've only seen the first episode, but still (laughs) uh, great work. uh, And thank you so very much. I, for one, am very proud of you. Thank you, Kara. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Kara Hetland. And let's say something lights up on your dashboard or there's a concerning sound whenever you turn on your car or your battery just flat out dies. What's your next step and where do you go? Well, the newer your car is, maybe the fewer options you have. Bob Jarrett is the Vice President of Operations at Sturdevant's Auto Value. That's an auto parts and accessory business headquartered in Sioux Falls. He joins me in the SDPB's Kirby Family Studio. Thanks for coming in. I appreciate it.
3: Thank you, Kara. appreciate the opportunity to be with you.
0: And Stacey Miller is the Vice President of Communications at the Auto Care Association, and she joins us by phone.
4: Thank you, Kara. I really appreciate the opportunity.
0: So this kind of all started with a story uh, by one of our producers who um, probably grew up like I grew up, and if something is wrong with your battery, you just drive to the auto parts store and they'll put it in for you. Um, And in her case, they couldn't do that because her car was too new and they wouldn't be able to access the computer from that parts store to uh, tell the computer that...
3: A new battery. A new battery's
0: there. So, they also made the comment to her <clears throat> about right to repair, and so that got us thinking. So, go ahead, Bob. I'll have you go first and start there.
3: Okay, from the parts store <coughs> perspective, uh, of course, out here in the Midwest, people are used to just coming to the parts store and and having a battery replaced. And since 2010, uh, the amount of electronics in the newer vehicles and all the sensors. It requires a lot more to be done, and a lot of times the computer needs to be uh, reset or notified that a new battery is there. So where this comes into play in our area is, of course, out here in South Dakota, there's a lot of rural cities and towns where you don't have accessibility to the OEs. So the right to repair gives all this information out to independent repair shops so they can perform these repairs although there is a big expense to those folks also because they have to have the equipment and the availability of the software to make the repair. But out here, just like everywhere else, people wanna take their vehicle and have it repaired by whomever they like. That may be a dealer, it may be an independent um, repair facility and especially out here in the ag where we're at, it's the same situation. Everything is becoming so technologically improved and advanced that all this information needs to be available so we can service the customer.
0: Service the customer, fix the vehicle, and then let the computer know uh, that the changes were made. Correct.
3: And it's ready to. And it's ready to go. Lacking the performance. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and Stacy, from the Auto Care Association perspective, uh, right to repair.
4: Right to repair is all about the freedom to choose where you get your vehicle maintained or repaired. As simple as that um your listeners have had the opportunity to repair their car where they choose no matter where they where they live based on how convenient and cost efficient it is for them all the right to repair movement aims to gain is to continue that right for drivers no matter how technological vehicles become
0: but it's so expensive just to hook it's it up expensive. to a computer right
4: It can be. And there's lots of technology in the new cars, but the bottom line is that the technology out there exists to diagnose and maintain vehicles. Um, We just need to make sure that we're providing that technology to the independents the same as we do with that OE manufacturer facility down the road.
0: So it's more for the independent repair shops that they have the same technology as the dealer fair exactly okay
4: a level and fair uh, playing field and so that there's competition in the local economy and competition is great for business
0: okay but it's also making sure you get to go to the person you trust and who isn't going to cheat you
4: exactly Um, all of the independents out there they have adequate training they're certified just like the manufacturer facility down down the street. So we're not saying don't go to the dealer. We're saying go where you prefer, to the folks that you trust, to the place that's most affordable and convenient for you.
0: Because I will tell you, in college, I did pay $150 for a new radiator cap.
3: Oof. <laughs> that would be excessive.
0: <laughs> that's what my dad said. I made a bad choice. But uh, young, uh, young women may tend to get taken advantage of.
3: Well, it's certainly more of a male-driven industry, that's <laughs> for sure, and and especially at the parts stores, you know, we like to take extreme care and explain the options, and because as Stacy said, there are a lot of options mm-hmm. out there, and I think the still the basic part of the discussion is to have the right to repair, to have the information, so that no matter who you are, you can take that vehicle to someone you trust to do the repair in a way that you feel is fair and appropriate.
0: And Stacy, you were going to say.
4: It's it's education. It's mm-hmm. just like any other consumer. You go online to search for the best price for something that you might be buying. You should be able to search for the best price on car repairs and go to the place that makes the most sense for you and your family. So preserving that right is extremely important to drivers, whether you drive a car, a truck, even the heavy-duty vehicles on the road that transport our goods and services are all part of this.
0: But I'm just going to say, you wake up one morning with a dead battery and you don't know where to go, right? Or, or you have the old mindset where you can just go to a parts store, get a battery, and install it yourself, or ask them to do it for you. And that's really no longer the case in the newer vehicles.
3: I would invite you to still visit your, your local parts store, or go to whoever you usually have, do your repairs, and we'll inform you If it is a a vehicle that doesn't need that type of service performed and or we can direct you to the right place to go to have the repair made.
0: Well, our producer ended up going to the dealer, but she had to get a jump. And it ended up costing more money and more time to go to a dealer than it would be to just do it herself or have somebody plop it in. And again, it's a computer issue. But let's talk rural um, and not a lot of dealers are in rural areas, and it's about fairness also for for these young mechanics to have the same computer software access as what, anybody else.
3: 100%. Uh, I was born and raised in the Gregory area. There is not an OE. Uh, car dealership in that area. There are a lot of reputable repair shops, as Stacy had said. They're all trained, but they have to have accessibility to that data and to be able to get into these vehicles and do the proper maintenance and resets that are required.
0: And so what's the consumer responsibility to make sure this happens?
3: Talk to your congressman. Be sure you get the word out that we need the right to repair because it's all about choice, as I'd said earlier. You want to be able to take your vehicle to whomever you trust, and that doesn't necessarily mean it might not be a, a dealership, but especially out here in our rural areas, most of the time, most small towns have one or two primary repair shops, and those are the folks that need to do these repairs and need to have this information.
0: Does it need to be legislation, Stacy?
4: It does. It does. Unfortunately, it does in order to make sure that we can enforce this right. And you mentioned the affordability of the software for the independents. Well, part of the legislation helps make sure that the software isn't prohibitively expensive for your independent down the road and that they're paying a fair price for that so that it is accessible. So there's one thing that drivers can do, which Bob said, is to talk to your legislators there's a really easy way to do that at repairact.com, where you can get the facts, it finds your legislator, and sends a letter to them to say, "Hey, we really need your support of right to repair because this helps my family stay on the road safer longer."
0: Okay, I want to thank you both for taking time and coming on uh, the program today to discuss this. Welcome back to In the Moment, and I'm Kara Hetland, In today for Lori Walsh, Arab-American author Edward Curtis takes us back to the early 1900s to share the stories of an often overlooked group of Midwesterners. His book, Muslims of the Heartland, How Syrian Immigrants Made a Home in the American Midwest, shares the stories of Midwestern Syrians. Dr. Edward Curtis is a professor of religious studies at the Indiana University School of Liberal Arts. Dr. Curtis will hold a discussion at the Old Courthouse Museum in Sioux Falls tomorrow, September 26th at 6.30 p.m. here in Sioux Falls. And Dr. Curtis is with me on the phone. Thank you so much for taking time and talking with us today. appreciate it.
5: It's my pleasure.
0: Um, So let's start a little bit. um, Tell us a little bit about your childhood growing up in rural Illinois.
5: Sure. I am a uh, fourth-generation Arab-American, depending on how you count it, which side of my family. My mother's family uh, immigrated from what was then the Ottoman Empire, the Eastern Mediterranean, today the countries of Syria, Lebanon, Palestine, and Jordan. And uh, I was very lucky in that I had a grandmother, uh, an Arab-American grandmother, who passed on all the culture, all the stories, and most importantly, the food, um, which any Syrian or Lebanese person in Sioux Falls, if you have a friend or know anybody, will tell you it's delicious. Uh, and, um, and she really uh, put a fire in my belly to learn more about the history of uh, our people in the Midwest, and, and I've finally done that with this book.
0: And so tell me some of your favorite stories your grandmother told you.
5: Hmm. I think, well, the book begins with a very, with a mystery, which is, she told me, and I think I said at the time, she said that the men in her mother's family would never set foot inside a church, which surprised me because our Christian and and as far as I knew, most of our Syrian and Lebanese relatives were, were Christian. But um, I finally discovered, after years, what she meant. It, her, her mother's family from Damascus was Muslim. And even though most of us who came to the Midwest were already Christian before we ever immigrated, the, um, there were a substantial number of Muslims among us. Um, And we all knew each other. And where in places like Sioux Falls, there was a community of Muslims, that uh, heritage got passed along. But where, for example, in southern Illinois, where there were in rural southern Illinois, where there, as far as I know it, very few Muslims, and southern Missouri, uh, it just didn't get passed along in the way. And that, that happened in the lower Midwest. In the upper Midwest, Islam tended to stay stronger as an identity.
0: So talk a little bit about the sense of community, and we're talking early 1900s, the sense of community uh, that this, these group of immigrants had in their
5: communities. That's right. I mean, they were—so they, um, they oftentimes arrived in um, Sioux Falls— and they were um, like a lot of immigrants from Southern Europe or Eastern Europe, including the many Greeks and Jews um, who were in Sioux Falls. They, um, they weren't um, well-educated oftentimes, and many of them were peddlers. And peddling was a very important part of their uh, of, of their community. And the other key part of their community was homesteading. They ended up homesteading. Um, the western part of the state, as that became they they arrived just when that land was being taken away from native people and divided up into hundred and sixty acre plots and given away to um, to anyone who would homestead it. So those were the kind of economic drivers, the sort of um, you know peddling, homesteading, and then finally just simple labor. And with that the money that they earned, I mean they ended up uh, raising, these um, sometimes small, sometimes large families um, passing on, most importantly, their Arab heritage to one another. And, and when they needed to, trying to protect one another from the discrimination that they sometimes faced, because they even though the South Dakota uh, census counted them as white people, they weren't often treated as white people in society. And so they really needed each other's help. To kind of survive and prosper. And they did. They did. As, you know, this community overall, if you think about the history of um, the Dakotas, I mean, you think about people like James Abu Rezik, the late senator, Jim Abnor, you know, these these sort of really pillar, they happen to be Christians, but they're also important Muslims like the Ogbe family in this uh, in, in their history.
0: And so the homesteading that you talked about taking place in western South Dakota was Kadoka that we know of today, not really uh, prime farmland. Uh, so they, they struggled a little bit um, with how to make money off the land. Is that true?
5: That's right. You know, I mean, the railroads, got, the railroads got built out there. The railroads promoted that land. And they were, everyone was supposed to use what's called dry farming, which was you till the land deeply, really deeply to somehow magically unlock the moisture. Well, anyone who's been to the Badlands, the Kadoka is the gateway to the Badlands, knows that there's no moisture to be had. And they're trying to plant wheat and other intensive crops. And so on a good year, they could do okay. But that, you know, as it was simply unsustainable as intensive, you know, for grain at the time, technology wasn't available and so even though there was a kind of land rush in the 1890s and the early 1900s, but by the agricultural depression of the 1920s, you began to already see some decline in the population. Plus, some of the characters in my book, they really hated it out there. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, the, you know, the book begins with the story of uh, the aunt of the person who Sam Ogby, who's hosting me, helping to host me um, at the old courthouse museum. And her mom, issues an ultimatum to her dad, said, look, you're either taking me to Sioux Falls or I'm going back to Syria because I can't take it here anymore.
0: <laughs> the winters were a little harsh, right?
5: <laughs> oh, yeah. Anybody who's been out there knows. I mean, the thing is you have to remember that they were in tar paper shacks like the other homesteaders. And, you know, it could get, you know, it could get to 20 or 30 below. And uh, you're in a 10 by 12 or maybe a little bit bigger tar paper shack. I mean, these weren't sod houses. Um, uh, by this point, they were using lumber and tar paper because it was so cheap and you could actually move your shack from place to place. And so it was really, really. Um, and, and so the people who did stay, though, as, as, as part of, I'm sure you know, the South Dakotan lore, they were a hardy bunch, the people who made it out there decade after decade.
0: So when we talk about a sense of belonging, could could this, these immigrants be Arabs and and hold true to their traditions and also be American at the same time?
5: Yeah, that was what surprised me as I did my research. I had, you know, I think I went into the research thinking, okay, I've heard that um, many of the first and the second. Um, generations, that they had to give up their names, they had to give up their religion, they had to give up their culture in order to assimilate. But what I discovered in South Dakota and um, across the Midwest is actually many of them saw their Arab communal identity. Often they would call themselves Syrian and then later Lebanese. It wasn't, they didn't start out, there was no Lebanon at the time, so they were Syrian at first. They saw that they oftentimes um, saw their religion as a source of, of strength, and they didn't see it as contradictory to their American identity. They saw the values of being Muslim or being Christian and being Syrian as uh, as parallel to being American. And so, so it was in a way because they supported one another, and they. And if you think about the Midwest at the time. Everybody had an ethnic or racial identity, whether someone was an Ashkenazi Jew or a Polish Roman Catholic, or uh, a Bohemian, um, you know, uh, Roman Catholic in Cedar Rapids or wherever. Everybody had an ethnic, often religious identity, and so that was just part of being a Midwesterner at the time. But it wasn't so that they could be separate; it was so that they could participate as a community in the country, and in fact. Many would give their lives, uh, including from Sioux Falls, in fighting for the United States in World War One. And you
0: World War I was really a turning point as well,
5: correct? It, it was. It was. And you know, it was so you know the, the Muslims in Sioux Falls, they either didn't attain the critical mass of people needed, or that identity somehow didn't cohere after World War One in the way that it did in other places, where you find mosques being built as the kind of ultimate public symbol of our belonging to America. Whether we're talking Ross, North Dakota; Cedar Rapids, Iowa; Michigan City, Indiana—all in those places, these these people built mosques. They did not in um, in Sioux Falls, but that doesn't mean that they didn't participate. World War one um, you know was a turning point for all of them because one many of them did not yet have citizenship up to that point but if they served in the US military, the men they could obtain. US citizenship and people from Sioux Falls did that and uh, I tell the I, I tell the story of a, of a young kid named uh, Joe Shammy who gave up his life in the Battle of meuse Argonne which was the largest battle in World War one and and the reporting on it back in Sioux Falls. And it's a really poignant you know story of bringing back the memory of this Syrian Arabic speaking kid to the folks back in Sioux Falls to tell him what he had done for the country.
0: I also love in the book your uh, the image that you paint of your grandfather and how strong he was and how um, Muslim Americans became athletes.
5: Yes. Yeah, and, and I, you know, that resonated in a way um, that I didn't, when I started seeing all of these Christian and Muslim wrestlers, and um, and sort of, and um, Alia Ogdi, um from Sioux Falls, we talk about her dad participating in these kind of um, strength competitions, you know, sword fighting, and, and on the famous July 4th, 1916 parade in front of the courthouse, and the, the crowd was bedazzled by the incredible um, sword dancing of the Syrian Muslims who put, on, um, who put on a show for everybody on July 4th. And these were all kind of martial arts that had been taught, especially to the men. Um, and I didn't know the background. I never knew why until the day he died, my grandfather so valued his abs of steel. I mean, he was, one of the, you know, he, he'd say, hey, punch me punch me. But it turns out he was not unusual. In fact, both he and his brother Ferris were recruited out of Broken Arrow, Oklahoma, uh, to play for Newt Rockney at Notre Dame, which is where he met my uh, Arab American grandmother, the one who raised me with this whole heritage at, uh, who was at St. Mary's College at the time, right across the way. So, you know, and it made sense to me too, because in some places, it depended on the place, but in some places, the manhood of these immigrants was really being challenged. And, you know, they, um, these physical kind of feats were a way for them to sort of exhibit their manhood in public. And that was very important in American culture at the especially at that time. Um, we see this in a lot of communities of color where sports kind of become, you know, become a way to show this kind of determination and strength to in the face of challenges.
0: And as you move through your book, you uh, then uh, talk about during the Great Depression, how the peddlers then became um, the store owners.
5: They did. They did. I mean, they were perfectly set up for it, right? And um, because they already had these networks, they knew how to, they knew what people wanted. They knew what goods, so they oftentimes would actually do a transition from peddler to dry goods, uh, store owner. And then when refrigerated cases uh, came in and um, became more available, than, you know, in the 20s and 30s. And in places like Sioux Falls and Cedar Rapids, I mean, if you talk to some old timers, many of them will remember the Corner Syrian Grocery Store. Uh, they were more in that business than many other businesses. And um, that was really important in the 30s. One of the reasons they did well as a community in the 30s is that there was very little credit, and grocery stores essentially became banks because it was one of the few places during the Depression that you could go to get credit. Mm. And, you know, and the store owner would keep you on their books, and then oftentimes when you got that paycheck, you would then bring that paycheck to the, to the grocery store owner. And so um, that gave the community um, a lot of um, wherewithal throughout the depression, which is, I had to explain why in the world were all these mosques built during the depression? Where was the money coming from? Well, a lot of it was coming from the grocery stores.
0: And it built trust, right? And a little bit of community as well.
5: Absolutely. And that's the thing, you know, for, so these, of course, you know, um, service, you know, um, the kids were all taught to um, dress neatly to
0: speak ex- oh, Dr. Curtis, I believe that we have uh, lost you um, so Dr. Yeah. Edward Curtis's presentation, Muslims of the Heartland, can uh, is at the Old Courthouse Museum tomorrow September 26th at 6.30 it's a free presentation Dr. Curtis, thank you for joining us today and we hope thank you, you so have a much. wonderful trip to Sioux Falls
5: Thank you so much, take care, bye bye <music>
0: Let's take a moment now for South Dakota history. On this day in 2012, the South Dakota Housing for the Homeless Consortium released an annual survey and count for those identifying as homeless. According to the report, the number of homeless individuals in the summer of 2012 was 1,163. The South Dakota Housing for the Homeless Consortium is a statewide organization that was created in the year 2000. They describe themselves as a coalition of service providers, individuals, local and state government departments, and faith-based organizations, all working together to address homelessness. The consortium says they believe that housing and other basic human needs should be within everyone's reach in an affordable and dignified manner. They describe one of their goals as an effort to raise awareness about homelessness in South Dakota. In 2009, they began an annual statewide homeless count and survey. They sought to document who the homeless are, where they're located, and what services they need to become self-sufficient. The consortium published their reports for use by service organizations and government agencies that need to allocate resources to the homeless. The consortium has an open invitation to any person with an interest in preventing homelessness or those who have been homeless to become members of the consortium. In more recent surveys, the number of homeless in South Dakota has been estimated at between 1,300 and 1,400 persons. That is up by about 15% from the number of homeless individuals identified in the survey published on this day in 2012. Production help is provided by Brad Tennant, a writer and professor of history at Dakota Wesleyan. Up next, Laura Rohde brings us a story of a small town keeping a legacy alive. You're on listener-supported SDPB Radio. listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Kara Hetland. In today for Lori Walsh. In the late 1800s, an adult education and social movement swept the nation. It was called Chautauqua and was named for the lake in New York where the movement began. By the 1890s, more than 200 Chautauqua events were held nationwide, and one of the more elite events took place each summer on the shores of Lake Madison in South Dakota. From 1890 to 1931, the three-week event attracted tens of thousands of visitors to the Madison community. Lura Rohde and Brian Gavick recently traveled to the shores of Lake Madison for SDPB. They toured the Lake County Museum to learn more from the local historians. Take a listen.
1: In the early years of statehood, Chautauqua was the place to be.
5: There were hundreds of people, thousands of people sometimes, that, that attended events at the Chautauqua grounds. It was huge. They had, they had people like... Um, former president, um, Taft came and talked, uh, Booker T. Washington. There were, uh, preachers and musicians and teachers of all sorts that came and presented, uh, workshops and, uh, they had concerts and it was a, it was an opportunity to, see things that you couldn't see if you were a, a local person in, you know, 1900.
6: People would come from Sioux Falls, Minneapolis, Sioux City, Iowa, and they'd catch the train to Madison. And then there was an extra spur um, railroad that was created to take people directly out to the
7: Chautauqua grounds. It was a historic movement in, uh, in the country, and this happened to be the location of one of, one of the most successful in the Midwest right here on Lake Madison.
1: You just heard the voices of Madison historians, John Nelson, Julie Brew, and Denise Lewis. Chautauqua was a traveling education and entertainment event that connected citizens across the nation to a shared lineup of popular entertainers and authors and politicians and and thought leaders. June 28th to July 10th, children's
6: entertainer, Reader and lecturer is exceptionally well qualified to meet the demands of the Chautauqua audiences, which are everywhere becoming more critical and demanding higher class attractions.
1: Julie Brew, director of the Lake County Museum, reads excerpts from the 1915 Chautauqua program. The engagement
6: of Mr. Walden, the great magician on the Chautauqua program for July 5th, 6th and 7th, promises a change from the regular routine. He proposes to rest I think it helped bring the country together after the Civil War. Um, the ideas we, we, it made it made South Dakota. It pulled us into the national thought process um, of you know the politicians, the entertainment. I think we were experiencing what other communities we're experiencing an understorm.
1: The Lake County Museum where Brew works houses one of the largest collections of Chautauqua artifacts. And it's where volunteer Denise Lewis has donated hundreds of hours researching and cataloging the Lake Madison Chautauqua collection of programs, flyers, meal coupons, and photographs. Chautauqua exposed the community, every community that it existed in. It exposed
7: people to things they wouldn't get to see otherwise. Because if you put yourself back in that era, there was no uh, internet, there was no ability to um, get educated online, there was no ability to watch a concert online.
1: While most host communities put up temporary, circus-like tents for Chautauqua, the Chautauqua grounds at Lake Madison were home to permanent Chautauqua structures, a 2,500-seat auditorium, grand hotel, and swimming pavilion. Chautauqua attendees took full advantage of all Lake Madison had to offer. Denise Lewis.
7: There was lots of recreation. Um, People would like the same thing they do today at the lake. They fish, they boat, they get out on the water, they swim. Um, They had slides and swim platforms built. Um, They had a boathouse built. There was canoes and rowboats to rent. There were leisure cruise boats that would, um, steam powered boats that would take you out on a scenic cruise of the lake, which back then was very undeveloped and very natural.
1: Lewis became interested in Chautauqua because she grew up on Lake Madison, and her childhood home sits across the lake from where the Chautauqua grounds once stood. And even though the last Chautauqua was held in 1931, and the event's permanent structures were long ago replaced by modern homes, Lewis feels strongly about the lasting impact Chautauqua had on the community of Madison. It's
7: a significant part of our local history. People may or may not realize that it spurred our growth um, and Madison has prospered ever since,
1: really. In addition to cataloging Chautauqua artifacts, Denise Lewis also gives community talks on Chautauqua to help keep its history alive. For South Dakota Public Broadcasting, I'm Laura Rohde.
0: you listening to In the Moment. I'm Kara Hatlinden. Today for Lori Walsh and author and illustrator Andrew Kolb's mind contains entire worlds. Andrew creates and illustrates role-playing guides as well as other books and games, and he's helping the people of Aberdeen unlock their imagination and create their own worlds this week during several workshops at the K.O. Lee Public Library. And before that, he joins us now via Zoom. Andrew, welcome. Thanks for being here.
8: Hi. Thank you for having me, Cara.
0: So let's uh, let's start uh, with this, this other world that's in your imagination. Describe it for me.
8: Sure. I mean, I, I suppose it is an interpretation of L. Frank Baum's Oz, which I know is kind of near and dear to uh, Aberdeen. Um, so what I've done is I poured over the books uh, for what feels like years, probably months um, to kind of get a sense of where Baum was uh, when he wrote these stories uh, and kind of what his vision was for this world uh, and then tried to interpret it in a way that would work for um, playing games. And so uh, for those who are familiar with Dungeons and Dragons, maybe through Stranger Things or other kind of media, what I've done is taken Oz uh, as envisioned by Bomb and interpreted it for those sorts of games.
0: And how how is it used by, by the gamers?
8: Great question. Uh, so uh, role-playing games like this are usually kind of asymmetrical in that there's like one person running the game and then there's usually two to three, maybe even more uh, other players that are kind of uh, exploring the world. Uh, So the person who is running the game would typically have the book and then read through it and understand the setting uh, and then create challenges for their players. So that can be kind of social challenges like uh, political drama or um, locking them out of a a party that they need to get into. uh, And then the players have to figure out ways through role playing and through some dice rolls to figure out. to overcome those challenges
0: and each time you play it can be different
8: yeah absolutely yeah the beauty of this is that uh 10 10 different people can pick up the book and they can run 10 different games uh because it really is think of it more like chess in that it is a game board that the person running the game can set up the pieces how they want and and then the other the Mm -hmm. other side or the other players can then respond in kind
0: and how, why, why Oz? Why, where is that inspiration coming from? Why
8: Oz? Great question. I, um, I, I mean, I loved the original stories. I admit I only kind of as a child read the first three, um, but uh, kind of being an adult and kind of re-exploring my kind of like childhood um, loves then went on with the rest of the series and really appreciated just how interconnected the setting was. Like, I think or I hadn't really come across any other fantasy literature for children or adults that uh, explored a setting first and characters second, like in the Oz books, or at least in Bomb's early Oz books, there are repeating characters, but really each time it tends to follow different, different protagonists or a different group of, of, of characters. And in that I found it really interesting. So, um, much like the games that uh, you can run in this setting, uh, Bomb designed Oz to be a location first uh, for different um, personalities to explore. Do
0: you have a favorite character?
8: (laughs) Oh, great question. Uh, I do love TikTok, uh, who is like a mechanical man. Um, He was featured in the the Oz sequel, Return to Oz, the movie. Um, But I always enjoyed kind of this very logical character, uh, who is kind of beholden to someone else kind of turning this giant clockwork crank on his back. Um, I like that kind of strength and knowledge, but kind of like physical, not maybe weakness, but, um, reliance on others.
0: And so you have uh, kind of another part of your career is, uh, becoming a publisher and a writer. So tell me a little bit about our illustrator, uh, writer and illustrator and publishing. So tell me a little bit about that journey.
8: So I went to school for graphic design um, and loved it, but realized that, uh, I mean, throughout my childhood, I was always drawing. And as a graphic designer, I wasn't doing that as much as I wanted. Um, so in transitioning to illustration, really found that that was kind of where my passion was. Uh, and uh, part of illustrating is getting to be exposed to many authors uh, and working with uh, kind of like picture book publishers uh and getting to kind of explore that world uh and after enough time kind of wading through those waters uh kind of took the leap and uh decided to uh pitch my own picture books uh and those books then led to working with other authors and and i mean i don't know it's not a linear path but have uh, eventually arrived at also pitching these sorts of uh books as well so now i get to write both picture books for for a younger audience and then these sort of setting books which are uh, skew more towards kind of like teens and adults.
0: And did you have that one aha foot in the door moment, or was it just going with the grind?
8: Oh, uh, I would love to. I would love to know what that one aha moment was, <laughs> uh, so that way I could <laughs> replicate it or share that experience with the world. Um, but I, I really think it was uh, both luck and a mix. Well, yeah, a mix of luck and uh, just dedication. Like I just continued to make work that I loved and shared it online and and eventually someone saw it and shared it with someone else and and kind of here we are now. It's not a romantic journey. Um, It is a lot of uh, kind of just making work for maybe two or three people to see Uh, but eventually that three becomes six becomes 12 and and it kind of snowballs into into hopefully um, a, a, a a, a consistent kind of following
0: and what's your best advice for aspiring creatives
8: oh great question um i have i mean i on saturday i have a full workshop dedicated to that but i think a a good snippet would just be to just to to do it like just to whatever it is that you're uh that you have in your mind or that idea that you kind of keep going back to whenever you're in the shower or going for a walk i think it's it's the the first step is really the hardest, uh genuinely. I, I mean that sincerely, in that it once you kind of get rolling, then if if it's truly meant to be, or if you are truly passionate in in kind of making it, then once it starts, then it kind of continues. That kind of like flow just keeps going. And, and maybe it'll slow down, but uh it, it always picks up again. If if you really are kind of like passionate in in following it through.
0: Okay. Andrew, I want to thank you for taking time and coming on the program today. I really appreciate it.
8: My pleasure. This has been lovely. Thank, thank you. Thank you.
0: And you can explore the wonderful, wonderful world of Andrew Kolb at the K.O. Lee Public Library in Aberdeen. These workshops are for all ages from on September 9th through the 30th. And there's more information on our website at SDPB. Dot ORG. and that'll do it for our show today. You've been listening to In the moment. I'm Kara Hetland. We hope it served you. Have a great day.